Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Hello, I am speaking listeners. Welcome to the next episode of I am speaking with Shailashi and Kosha. We are firmly in season four, where we are talking about mental health and neurodiversity. Today, we have an amazing woman on the podcast. Her name is Louisa. And wow, this woman has been through some stuff. And yet, the work she has put into becoming aware of her mental health challenges and healing from her past traumas is is truly extraordinary. Louisa suffers from CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, also anxiety and depression. Her journey has been one with obstacles, with difficulties, but her story really accentuates the idea that when you put in the work, you really can come out on top. We want to be very clear and make people aware that there is a trigger warning here. Some talk of suicidal ideation and attempted suicide. If you listen to Louisa, you truly can come away inspired, as Shailoshi and I did from this conversation. Enjoy this episode of I Am Speaking with Shailoshi and Kosha. Louisa is speaking. Hi, my name is Louisa, and I go by she, her, and I am speaking. Hi, Louisa. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. We're here to talk about today a range of very, and I hate to use the word complex when we're also going to talk about complex PTSD, but intertwined, challenging, and not straightforward mental health issues. I want to, again, recognize and acknowledge right from the very beginning that this is really, really difficult stuff. And so we really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us and our listeners things that could be very personal and difficult to talk about. So thank you. 
Well, it's an honor to be here. I hope I can raise awareness and get more people talking about their um, struggles. That's exactly what we want to do. And I think to add to the adjectives that Sheila, she was using, like definitely complex, nuanced, uh, but also I would say misunderstood. Very much so, very much so. One of the things that Shilshi and I both really are pretty passionate about is stopping the, the, the throwaway vocabulary that people use when it comes to mental health, right? So like, stop, be, stop saying the word crazy when, you, when you're talking about someone, right? Like if you're like, oh, this situation is crazy, that's a little bit different. But when you go, oh, that, that person's just acting crazy, those, those words invalidate. So I, I do think, you know, words like, and I have anxiety. So words like, oh, I have so much anxiety. I'm having a panic attack. No, that's an actual thing that can really debilitate someone in that moment. And, you know, PTSD is another one, isn't it? That people kind of use as uh, they had something happen to them and they're like, I'm going to have PTSD about that. And you're like, no, like we need to stop invalidating what people are actually going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I've, I've been in situations where someone's like, oh my gosh, just give me PTSD. And it's just like sitting at a restaurant and someone said something and it's just like, are you kidding me? Do you know what you're actually saying right now? Like, don't, don't say that. And even the anxiety thing, like I used to say, oh, um, that person is crazy when I was younger before I even got my diagnosis. And now I'm just like, oh, those words actually hurt because just because someone's anxious about something doesn't mean they're crazy. And just because I have anxiety, it doesn't mean I'm crazy. It's a mental illness and I'm not crazy. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us how we ended up talking to you on the podcast, basically, right? Your, your history, your childhood, sort of what you're doing now, um, and, and what brings you to the place of wanting to share these stories. Okay. So I came across you guys in a, in a Facebook, Facebook group. Actually, I just decided this year that I was going to be more open about my story because I've healed up and I really just want to help others. So I just posted in a group, hey, I'm looking to share my story about CPTSD. If anyone wants to hear it, contact me. And you guys contacted me. So it was, it was great. So my journey actually, it started sooner than I actually knew. So what um, CPTSD, it, a lot of it is um, long-term trauma. So I have a lot of childhood trauma. Um, my first traumatic event that I can actually remember was at age six, but I do suspect that there was more before that. I just can't remember. So um, can I just stab you for a second? So, so C, what does the C stand for in CPTSD? It's complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's PTSD, which relates to like one single event that Um, causes trauma and then complex post-traumatic stress disorder relates to more long-term and it is way more complex (laughs) like it's Mm -hmm. it's bizarre because there's a bunch of other triggers like someone with PTSD might be triggered around one thing like you hear people who have been in accidents they have PTSD and they can't do certain things when you have complex post-traumatic stress disorder there's all these different triggers um, and it depends on the trauma and how long you've been through it and like for me I've had to pinpoint every single one of my triggers and learn how to um, calm myself down or just avoid it. And a lot of it is also avoiding certain people. Like for instance, I can come across as a very shallow person. 
but I'm actually, I have a very big heart, but I'm just very selective on who I hang out with because I know one trigger could just set me off and put me down like a spiraling hill and it's going to be hard to recover. Right. Um, so that's the main difference with that. I felt like my life has just been a lot of like traumatic events and I just kind of bounced back. Um, I was um, raised, I'm Hispanic. So um, I got that strong Hispanic gene where like you don't show weakness, like stuff happens and you just move on. And my mom was very good at making sure that I was being strong. So I didn't deal with any of my traumas. I just, something happened and I just moved on. Um, sometimes I cried, sometimes I didn't. Um, and it wasn't until I was uh, 25, actually, I'm 34 now, but I, I moved to British Columbia, Canada. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. So I moved to Canada with my husband. I was actually studying to become a counselor. And as I'm reading stuff, I'm learning about PTSD. And um, next thing you know, I started like really having like manic episodes. Like I would wake up in the middle of the night screaming because I thought someone was in my room and my husband was just like, what is happening? And I was like, this person's here. Like um, this person like scratched up my face. Like this person's beating me or whatever. And he's just like, no one's here. So um, it was like at least a week of it. And then because I've been studying it, I was like, oh, I think I have some PTSD. But I was like, I'm studying to be a counselor. I don't have time for this. I don't, I'm not dealing with this. But then it got worse. There was one time I was driving home. Um, I was helping at a local rehab um, center. I was helping with a bunch of women who had like eating disorders and just anxiety, depression, which is funny that I was dealing with this, but I was willing to help others, but not even myself. You were not diagnosed with anxiety or depression yet. No, I wasn't. So I was driving home and then I had one of those episodes. I was like extremely triggered. I was like hearing voices and I almost like threw my car in the ditch. And actually I saw a picture of my husband's face and he was just weeping. And that's what kind of made me like hit the brakes and just figure out what was happening. And it was then that I decided, okay, I need help. So I sought out a counselor and I was lucky enough to get a diagnosis really quick. Um, here in Canada, it's hard to get diagnosis, but it was pretty obvious. And at that point I, I had depression, anxiety was at its peak. So I got my diagnosis and then I started EMDR, which is, uh, I forget what it stands for. It's something with eye desensitization. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah. So um, I remember when I started doing, I was like, this is so dumb, but whatever. And it was bizarre, the amount of repressed memories that came from that. I was like, whoa, what did you do to me? And then she's like, I didn't do anything. It's your brain processing everything. So I did that every week for a year and a half. It was intense. It was like the most intense season of my life. And with that, I had depression and I had anxiety. And at that point, I started taking medication. Uh, my doctor said, well, you need meds to, to manage this. So I remember just being drained. The life was literally like sucked out of me, but I knew I had to do the work. Here I am now. Like this was, I'm 34 now. So this was almost 10 years ago, I want to say. Actually, no, that's all nine years. Anyways, here I am now. And I look back and I'm like, man, I'm so glad I did the work. Um, and when we finished EMDR, we started, they started giving me tools on how to survive with PTSD because the thing with this is that you do the work, but it's a lifelong thing. You have to always work at being okay, 
um, keep on working at um, preventing the triggers, right? Right. It's not like triggers go away, right? They're still always going to be there. Yeah. And I think it's important that people know that because for me, it's like, okay, I did the work. I did the counseling. I'm on meds. Why are these triggers still here? But they don't, they don't go away. It's what you do with them that, that counts, right? So now, like, I've, I've healed up. Um, I still get triggers, but I'm able to manage them so much better. I get anxiety attacks still. But again, I can feel them coming on and I can manage them better. And with anxiety and depression, I want to um, rewind a little bit. I'm almost positive that I had anxiety and depression before my diagnosis. As a kid, I was always a very anxious person. And my heart rate was always higher than like normal. And I actually remember like getting tested for like heart, um, heart disorders, regular heartbeats. And, and there was like, well, there's nothing there. Your heartbeat is just really fast. And now that I know enough, I was like, oh, it was my anxiety. Like I remember at school, I would just like panic and I had no idea what was happening. My mom had no idea what was happening. And I was labeled as someone who was very sensitive, but there was just a lot of anxiety, untreated anxiety and depression. So yeah, um, that's that. And like now I am pretty much the healthiest I've ever been mentally. Like I run my own business and I'm very big on mental health. Like anytime I get to talk about mental health, especially in the business world, I, I just talk about it because it's something that just gets pushed to the side. It's an icky topic. No one wants to talk about it because they think they have this thing, oh, I'm crazy if I talk about it. And it's like, well, no, you're not crazy. You're human. Like, um, and that's something that um, I just advocate for. And I'm glad that I'm able to finally um, come out and, and share my story in hopes of helping someone else. Everything you've described is really, I would, it's not, I'm not going to say it's awesome because I, would, I wouldn't want those <laughs> things for anyone, right? Um, but you've really given us a big overarching, you know, view of sort of how all this stuff, how all of these diagnoses came about, what the timing and how you see them as being interrelated. I want to go back a little bit and sort of talk through like from a like life cycle or a life phase perspective, like as a kid, you, you know, and this is a great segue, you were talking about how you, when you look back on it, you're saying, I probably was a really, I probably had anxiety as a kid. I was probably really struggling with that as a kid and nobody, you know, saw it or nobody recognized it. I mean, I didn't even recognize it. Talk a little bit about, you know, what your childhood was like and where you saw, as you look back, where did you see, or where do you see that your anxiety would peak or what were the situations that would cause more anxiety for you? So first thing that pops over my head is social anxiety. Um, I've always hated big crowds. And I remember my mom always, and as a Spanish thing, like, don't, she's like, don't be rude, say hi, use your manners, right? And I remember just like sweating and just wanting to like run away from people. And I vividly remember my kindergarten, um, my first day at kindergarten, I went in there and I was terrified. And I can't remember why I started late. It may have been because of my birthday, but school starts in September and I'm pretty sure I started in November on my birthday. And I was a new girl in class and like, it was more than, five. I mean, years later, I remember like, you see all the little faces like staring at me and I'm trying to find a spot. And I just like, I really struggled and 
my mom, my family is like, oh, you'll be fine. Just, just get over it. And it's actually sad that the teachers didn't notice that either, because like, I don't remember them pulling me to the side and supporting me. And I also, um, like English wasn't my first language. It was Spanish. So I struggled with that too. And I was in a bilingual class. So I kind of wish that I had um, what they call an EA now, or I guess an educational assistant to, to help me navigate that. So that was one instance. And then something else is I always hated big celebrations. I couldn't handle graduations. And I vividly remember my graduation, my kindergarten, like moving up ceremony. And my mom was so mad at me because I refused to smile for pictures. And I was just like, what am I doing here? I don't want to be here. I don't want to put the stress on. I don't want to be around all these people. I can never handle the attention. Birthday parties, they were really hard for me. I, I got lucky in the sense that I got to share my birthday parties with my sister because our birthdays are the same week. But all the people just staring at me, I remember just like sweating and I would just sit there like twiddling my fingers. And um, I was always very like sensitive to, to people. Um, like I didn't, I guess I was shy. I couldn't approach people and, and talk to anyone. And I was also bullied in elementary school and I could never like speak to anyone about it I also think that was like I don't know if this is the right word situational anxiety in the sense that like for instance I was being bullied at school but I knew I couldn't tell my mom that because my mom would be like you need to go fight back and slap this person and like I just wouldn't tell anyone because I was like I don't want any trouble I don't want to get in trouble with my mom I don't want any drama I just want to be left alone and I've always envisioned myself if I can hide under a rock, like in school, I would just daydream. Like if I could just go under a rock and just stay there and just come out and eat, that'd be great. Those were the little glimpses. And as I got older, it didn't get any better. Um, I think I just learned to manage better. I learned how to keep my anxiety at bay. And um, I met some people who were also shy and we just labeled it as shyness, right? Yeah. What's really interesting, I find really interesting that you're like, I was really lucky that I had, you know, birthday with my sister because I will say, quote, usually you don't want to share your birthday with anyone because I get what you're saying. It's like most little kids want their birthday all to themselves. So I think it's really telling that, you know, as even a four or five, six year old, you're like, Oh God, thank God you're here. You know, like, I don't have to, sh I could share this with somebody. Yeah. 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 I was going to, I was going to comment on that too. Cause like, if I want to take a moment and digress a little bit, which is there are three things going on here, right? One is, is, or three potential ways to think about what you were doing. And I think the first two are often how people, especially um, people who are not familiar with social anxiety or think like it's, that can't be a thing, right? Um, is one, you said you described yourself as shy and some people are shy. Like that's, I'm not denying the existence of shyness, right? Um, some people are, are more reserved or they don't want to open up right away or they, you know, it takes them a while to feel comfortable. The second thing is being introverted, you know, sort of another characteristic, a personality characteristic that people conflate with shyness and often covers up anxiety for the sake of this, for the sake of our listeners. Let's just be clear that being introverted doesn't mean that you're shy. It doesn't mean you don't like to be around people. It doesn't mean you don't talk. The way we define it in this podcast is that a person who's an introvert needs to recharge themselves by downtime alone. 
they don't want to socialize. They don't want to be talking to people to feel recharged. They need to be alone and have like quiet time to themselves. Doesn't mean that you have anxiety either if you're an introvert. True. But so often people cover, talk about anxiety when you say, oh, I, I'm feeling anxious. No, you're just shy. Oh, you're just introverted, right? And all of these three terms get mishmashed together, which is not good for people who are actually shy or people who are introverted and people who have anxiety. I think our parents so often think, or parents of a certain generation so often think that you can't have anxiety, right? Um, you're just shy. You're just introverted. You're just the new kid, right? There is a, you're just fill in the blank as, as a cover and excuse for dealing with the anxiety. But I mean, the fact that you're like freaking out and like, like sweating and running away and like not wanting to be around people like that is very different than being shy, very different than being introverted. As an example on that, um, for instance, my husband's an introvert, but he doesn't have anxiety. He doesn't have social anxiety. So he recharges by being alone. He loves football. He's a big football fan. We've gone to football games and he's fine. He's loving it there, right? The minute the football game ends and there's people around me, like I'm sweating. I'm like, I need to get out of here. I feel suffocated. And it's like, I have a panic attack and he's just fine. He's living his best life. And all he needs to do now is just go and rest and he's he's fine right so that's a good example and I think that helped me even realize the level of social anxiety that I have because for a long time I was like oh I'm just an introvert and yes I am an introvert but I also have anxiety and it's almost like I had to ask him I was like these clouds don't like bug you like you don't feel anxious and he's just like no I don't like being around a lot of people but I'm fine and then it was like oh Okay, this makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So do you, do you think, and, and I just want to make sure I get the story right, that your anxiety existing before the bullying, but that the bullying sort of exacerbated, made it worse to be in those school social situations where it's like, I can't, this person's on me and I don't like it. And I already didn't like to be here to, to begin with. And I can't tell anyone. Yeah, I, I do think it was there before the bullying because um, I've always been kind of the family weirdo. Um, I was always very different. Me too. And I look back and I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense. Like, and like family gatherings, like Sundays at grandma's house, we always did that. I was always, you would find me in a corner somewhere away from the crowd because I just didn't want to be a, like I, I like being seeing my grandma but I didn't want to be around everyone so it was definitely before school and school just added to it and even the pressure of knowing that I had to fend for myself and defend myself that just kind of all added to it sure were these those traumatic experiences that started at like the bullying was the trauma that started adding and conflating with the anxiety um, one of them. So I have a long, long history of trauma. So, um, bullying definitely was one of them. Um, my mom was also very strong and I had to learn to label it as abuse. So that added to it. Um, when I, I started learning that what mommy was doing was normal. Um, and I think it was always, I was always on edge because, um, uh, my mom also has 
undiagnosed stuff. And she, and it's the whole stigma. She, she's not, she's not crazy. So she doesn't want to go get checked. She's had her own, her own issues and she was projecting out to us. So we had this expectation, like we had to do stuff or mommy will snap. Right. So there was that trauma, then school. And then the one that um, was like the, like writing a piece, I was also sexually abused um, at the age of six by a family friend. So again, through that, there was a lot of repressed stuff because I didn't feel like I can say anything. And I also, it was part of like, I can say anything, but it was also like, I don't know if this is actually wrong because um, he's touching me, but touch is okay because he loves me. Um, but it just doesn't feel right, but whatever. So that went on for six years. Well, and at the age of six, yeah, that's not something that you're taught or at least back then. Now I think we're getting like, my daughter is seven years old and she definitely knows what, what is okay. What is not okay. We hear about it at the doctor's office. The doctor will tell her, um, the nurse will tell her like this, this is what's okay. And when it is, but I also know that like touch feels good. Right. So there's a lot of, and I think Dak Shepard is the one who talks about it. Like there's certain things that feel good, but you know, they're not supposed to be happening. So they're, it's like shame built on top of it. Like, I know this isn't supposed to be happening, but it feels good. So that doesn't, that it shoves down even farther you being able to talk about it. Yeah. And then just the whole, the whole love aspect of it too. Like I was like, I've always wanted to just be loved. Right. And my mom wasn't, she, now that I'm a mom myself and I understand that she was just all touched out. Um, but I try to snuggle with her and she's just like, no, I just need some space. So then it's like, okay, I'll go somewhere else. And then it's like, oh, well, this guy is snuggling with me. Sure. He's touching things that I don't think he should, but I'm getting hugs and this is him showing that he loves me. So this is okay. And it's not, um, but I, I'm really glad that you mentioned that we talk about it now because I have a almost four-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son, and they know very well that if anyone touches their privates, that they say no, and they come tell me, like we've drilled them on it. And actually my daughter is the youngest one. She's actually, she tells her brother, respect my space, respect my boundaries. And this is like- <laughs> That's awesome. You're absolutely right though. There is so much, some people, they just want more physical touch than other people. I mean, I had, I have still two children. And even when they were little, like I would never get touched out because I really, really love um, the feeling of being skin on skin, right? We always talk about skin on skin contact with babies. I love that. Even if it's holding hands or someone rubbing my arm, I loved having my kids on me. I still love having my kids on me and they hate it now. <laughs> they're like, oh, mom. But I have a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old. So they're like, enough. I can absolutely see how that sort of, I want this from my mom. This is some a loving action. And I'm not getting it from my mom for any number of reasons. But this person over here, whom I generally trust my family trusts right it's not like some random person it's someone that you know the touch feels good and just like you said I'm not sure they're supposed to be touching there but overall it feels good this is part of the the story of complex PTSD which is layer upon layer upon layer you know your mom basically was like be strong so there's no one to tell about it exactly yeah 
it's important that um, people know that I'm not actually bashing my mom. And I think as a mom too, I've learned, actually, I joke with my husband and say, I'm setting a therapy fund for my kids. Like people want to plan for college. And I'm like, no, I'm setting a therapy fund because I know I'm going to screw up and I want them to be well taken care of. But this is this generational stuff, right? And we've come such a long way in terms of um, information and speaking up, right? So um, yes, my mom did all that. However, she had her own issues and she didn't get the help that she needed. And her mom did whatever it is that her mom did, right? So it just layers upon layers upon layers, right? For me, even speaking on this, uh, it took me a while to even talk about my mom and the abuse because it's like, no, I love my mom. Like, I don't want to talk about it, but it is what it is, right? So I think it's important for people, like if you have a story, you can you can actually share it and still like be thankful, honor your, your parents, right? Because no one is perfect. And even me as a mom, like I can't emphasize this enough. I will screw up. I have screwed up. And it's what you do with it that, that matters, right? Yeah. And let me say you're a hundred percent right. When Encanto came out, we've talked about this many times, but that people are doing the best they can with what they have. Kosh and I have talked a little bit about this on the podcast. We've certainly talked about it a lot more outside of the podcast, which is our parents came from their parents who came from their parents who came from their parents and they're doing the best they can with who they are and what they have and, you know, their background and their history and all of that stuff. There's intention and then there's sort of how it, then the effect and the effect can be negative without the intention being negative. As you grow up, right, you can recognize, hey, that was not cool. And, and my parents did this stuff and it was really not good for me. And they didn't mean to do that. They didn't mean for it not to be good, but it was not good. Right. And so part of being an adult is to be able to hold two things at once and say, yeah, they, my parents tried as hard as they could and they didn't always, they didn't always land it. They didn't always stick the landing on whatever they were trying to do. This caused harm even though they weren't trying to cause harm, right? And I think that just to reiterate that like, you're not trying to bash your mom. Your mom did the best she could. And it didn't necessarily mean that everything was perfect or everything was great. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. I also tell my kids like, well, I'm like, I can't be perfect. Otherwise you won't have anything to complain about in therapy. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that I, I will put out there to both of you between that, you know, intention and action, right? Intention and actuality is when it's brought to that person's attention and, and they refuse to accept that they were harmful in some way. It, that's where those two things become, they come together, right? So like, if someone's like, hey, you keep yelling at me about this thing, I know you don't intend, to to make me feel bad, but it makes me feel bad. If they continue to do it, then that becomes problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And and I also think for some people, it's very difficult to accept that their behavior caused harm, even without intent, because they take that as they take it personally, right? Somehow like they need to defend themselves by saying, I didn't mean it. I didn't this, I didn't that. And 
the point of that conversation when you bring it up is for the for the person to re- to hear this is causing harm i'm not saying you meant it right like some again both of those things can be true you can be a person can be causing harm without intending to cause harm and and so people conflate the two and they go i caused harm so you're saying i'm a bad person and and that is often the biggest hurdle for people to get over is to look at their behavior and say oh i didn't i didn't mean to do that but it had whatever you know it had that effect yeah and i also like even like this is talking about my mom here but now in the now for instance as someone with cptsd i have a lot of triggers and i'm sensitive right so people have to be able if you want to have someone like me in your life you need to be able to accept the fact that you triggered me and it's not nothing to do with you as a person i'm not saying you're a horrible person i'm saying this hurt me this triggered me i'd appreciate it if you didn't do it again Right. And I feel like people really do have a hard time grasping it. And even they'll just label you as, oh, you're just so sensitive. And it's just like, no, I'm actually, well, yes, I am sensitive, but I also have an, a mental illness. Right. So if someone's ill, you wouldn't do something that's going to purposely harm them. So it's the same with me. It's just different and looks different. Right. So now that, you know, talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind, like, how do you manage your triggers? in the now um, and and help people to understand what your triggers are and engage with them in a way that, you know, that you can take care of yourself. But also like if you and I were talking and I said something and I didn't know you well enough to know what was going on, right? How do you help people understand you did something, it's, you didn't mean to do it, but it had this effect on me. So please don't do that again. Yeah, that's been a challenge. So especially where I live in Canada, everyone's very um, sensitive, not sensitive. You have to be very cautious on what you say because they take take it to heart and they're not direct people. Where I'm from in Brooklyn, you just say it as it is, right? Like you hurt my feelings, let's fix this. Here you have to be very careful. So I found it really hard to navigate things, but what I've learned is that I just have to be myself and be direct. And if they can't accept it, then that's not my fault. It falls on them. So I've had to do a lot of research on just letting go of um, this weight of others, right? So if someone triggers me, I can just, I just say, hey, that triggered me, I appreciate it. And they have two options. They can say, oh, I'm sorry. Um, can we talk more about it? Or how do I not do this? Or they can just label me as sensitive. And then that's where I'm just like, okay, you're not my person, right? And it's- sounds- That makes it easy for you, right? That, that you're like, <laughs> you made this decision about our relationship easy. Yeah. and. Like I, I get a lot of um, pushback on the, like me just cutting people off thing often. But for me, it's just like, this is almost like life and death. Like if I, st- if you can't honor the fact that this is triggering me and this can actually send me down a really dark, dark pit, then you need to not be my friend. Right. Um, and it's not me trying to be mean. Of course, I want to keep people around, but I also have myself and I have a family. And I think it wasn't until after um, I had my family that I realized, okay, I really need to like hone on this and be very cautious because everything that happens doesn't just affect me. I can't just go sit in a room and cry in the dark because someone triggered me. Like I have a family, right? So that's kind of the mindset I have is just like, okay, I have to be mean, not just for me, but for my family. And it's not even mean, it's just like 
being direct. So I have a very, very small circle, which I'm okay with. Like I, I joke with my husband and say, I'm just a loner. Um, but I've learned to, to be okay with it. And my circle, like they give me life and I do what I, I joke and say, I, you know how you go like on Tinder and you go on dates and you figure out if you don't like this person, you just move on. I kind of wish it was like Tinder for friends because I felt like the minute you go on a date with a new prospective friend, you're like stuck with them. Like, and you, you have to be able to just be like, okay, this ain't going to work out. I don't have anything against you, but our personalities don't click and let's just move on. Right. So that's kind of how, how I manage. I just stick my feet in the water and test the waters with a new person. If it doesn't work, then I just move away. Or um, with my friends, I, I have a very, very open relationship and I'm very direct and it's been good. Yeah. No, I, I uh, appreciate and admire that a lot. I think too often we, we as a society, right? Not just we, but generally people don't say what's on their minds. And there's a huge difference, as you noted, between being mean, right? It's like, it's a difference between saying, hey, that hurt my feelings and saying, you're a jerk because you hurt my feelings. Like that's mean um, to call someone a jerk. It could have been a misstep, what, you know, right? Like that's the kind of thing. Versus being direct, which is that hurt my feelings and don't, please don't do that again. It's the same thing, right? As kosher, what you were saying before, which is if people cannot accept that they could do something that would be hurtful, even though they didn't intend to be hurtful, then there's this bigger question about like, is this someone I want to be with? Because they, it's not a give and take. It's only you want to do things the way that you want to do things. And you're not willing to listen to my feedback to shift for me, relationships have to be adaptive on both sides. And I don't always have to just take things because you don't want to change. You can't blame somebody for something they don't know, but I can absolutely blame you for continuing to do something that you know is hurting me. Like you said, like a physical situation. If you're like, I'm diabetic and all you ever have to eat in your house is Snickers. Can you please have something else? Because I'm diabetic, I can't eat this, right? And then they just continue putting out Snickers. You're like, well, I just can't eat here anymore. Like it's, it's like you can do whatever you want, but I have to make the decision to not eat at your house anymore because I will die if I continue to eat Snickers. And you know, I think about the same thing, um, like all three of us are people of color and you get this a lot with, with racism, right? Like where people will say something, I am not going to blame you. So Shayla, she and I are Indian. And we heard this a ton growing up and it was quote accepted when we were growing up, but now it's not. You say like, oh, you're Indian. And then people will go dots or feathers. Oh, wow. Exactly. So back, you know, when I was five, I had to kind of like laugh about it. But now you could be like, hey, um, I know you didn't mean it to be racist. Like you thought it was funny, but it's, it's really pretty racist. If that person cannot handle that, this thing that you were saying was racist, that I'm like, I'm not going to spend time around someone who's not willing to change a racist idea. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the racist, um, racism thing because it's trauma related to that too. So I grew up in the inner city. 
it was always like heavy police presence. Um, it was predominantly black and Latino people. And um, we grew up with an image of police officers and they were not nice. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't, I'm not someone who hates police officers. I actually know a few of them and I love what they do, but some of them are just very stereotypical and mean. Like it'll be times we're hanging out in the park and then they just raid the park just because, right? So um, now that um, the systemic racism is like front and center staring at your face, I've gotten comments of people saying, well, you're just too sensitive. Not everyone hates black people or they'll say stuff. And it's like, you don't understand how traumatic it is for me. And then even as a mom, um, my kids, obviously, well, they're mixed. They're half black, half white. But for me now, it's like, I'm looking for allies because it's not just me. I've got a family. So if you're not going to speak up against racist stuff, then I don't want to be your friend. Right. And I think people underestimate the amount of trauma. Like, for instance, you, the whole dots and feathers stuff, that's not a very nice thing to say. And why would people even think it's okay to say that, right? And people like crack jokes and it's all fun and games until it's not, right? And if you can't accept the fact that you, if someone's telling you, hey, this is racist and you can't accept it, then you're you're the problem. Exactly. Okay, I'm telling you that that is triggering for me. If you're going to continue to do it, then... That is on you, actually. Yeah. That is right. a you problem, not a me problem anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And then even touching base, like this is very sensitive to- topic, the whole like gun stuff, right? I have PTSD, right? Guns scare the crap out of me. I don't go hunting. Um, I don't have a problem. If you want to go hunt, go hunt. I don't care. But don't come in my house with a gun. Don't invite me in your house and flaunt all your guns because this is triggering for me. And I've had conversations with people who are just like, well, um, it's our first amendment, right? Or whatever amendment, I don't even know, I'm not political. But it's like, yeah, it is your right, but it's also my right to feel afraid of it. Now, am I afraid of you as a person? No, I'm afraid of the gun. People just can't wrap their head around the trauma related. And then especially growing up in the States, you've got massacres, right? Or there was times where I would literally be sitting in a park and there was a shooting, like, and you just have to run for cover, right? And people just don't get it. And there has to be a sensitivity. And there's, there's sensitivity in my end, too. Like, I'm not saying, oh, I have CPTSD. Like, I hate guns. You're not allowed to have a gun. Yeah, you're allowed to have a gun if you want it. Just don't bring it in front of me. Respect my, my boundary as I respect your right to do whatever you want outside of my presence, right? I'm really, I'm struck by as, as we're talking about this, that so much of this like pushback around, you know, when you tell somebody, when somebody hears, you know, this, this is triggering for me or it's stressful, or I find it scary or, you know, it feels like sometimes there's a deliberate lack of wanting to empathize, right? Not just even like, oh, I don't get it. It's like, I don't want to get it. And related to that, just how much privilege people who don't have a basis to empathize and don't care to empathize must have, right? So if people don't understand why dots versus feathers is not, they don't get that, that's privilege of a sort. And the fact that you don't want to get it is a whole nother set of privilege. Same thing with guns, same thing with police, right? That's good for people if they've never had an adverse interaction with the police officer. We would actually hope that nobody would have that. But if you haven't, and I'm telling you it's 
stressful for me. I have emotion. I have an emotional reaction to that. Don't tell me that you don't think I should. And I think that is the second layer of privilege. There's this, the base layer is like what we want everyone to have. Everyone should be, everyone should be treated, you know, with respect from a racial ethnic standpoint. Nobody should have bad interactions with the police. Nobody should be in the middle of a shootout. That's a base privilege and great. I'm glad that you never had that. But when I'm telling you I have, and you're telling me I shouldn't feel the way I feel, that's a whole nother level of privilege that we don't talk about. Just how cute that you think that, that you can tell me how to feel about things. Yeah, and they get so offensive when you throw the word privilege. It's, it's mind boggling to me. Like when you say you're, um, you're showing your privilege or you're being privileged right now, it's just like, it's like a swear word. And it's just like, why can't you just acknowledge it? Like, I'm not trying to come at you. I'm not trying to bash you. I'm trying to actually help you understand that this is the case. Right. And people just, you're right. They, they just don't want to empathize. And it's so sad. They're just so stuck in their ways. And it, it just, it's just sad. And for me, it's like, I say this often, I'm like, it's 2022, man, get with the program. <laughs> Come on. Do you, so do you find that these responses that are non-empathetic and basically like non, not, not even wanting to be empathetic, not wanting to understand, do you find that when you talk about your anxiety and depression, that there's a similar response or a different response? Um, I think it's similar in a sense because um, when I talk to someone, I, there's a certain level of trust. This is like, okay, um, I trust you enough to have this conversation with you. And then to have it like backfire is just like, oh my gosh, this person is not safe, right? And it's not like the person disappears from the face of the earth, especially if it's someone who lives nearby. It's like you see the person and then like I just start like sweating or I, I have two reactions depending on the person. Or the, the comments. Some people can tick me off enough that I'm just like, I'm just going to have my RBF and look at them straight in the eye and not be phased. But there's others who actually like, it hurts me because I thought they were a safe person and they weren't. And now it's like, I have to be careful with them. And I feel like I have to protect my kids from this person because they can hurt her. And it's more extreme, right? It's for me, it's just not just a disagreement. It's just like, wow, I am not safe. And I keep on replaying things over and over in my head. And I, I had to learn with um, with this George Floyd incident. That's when I started really talking about like racism and, and I live in a predominantly white neighborhood. So it's very hard to talk about anything black related. But with the George Floyd thing, I realized the anxiety that came with that in the conversations I had with people. Like I had someone tell me off because I, I, I try to explain to this person, hey, like you, you, you sound privileged because like he was upset because I was talking about police officers being mean and not doing their job properly. And then he's just like, you're saying I'm privileged. You don't realize you're privileged and you have police officers trying to protect you. And it was just kind of like, first of all, police officers growing up for me were in a sign of protection. Um, so for that, like I actually looked up to this person. So to have him come at me like that, it was like, whoa, like, this guy did a full 360. He is like, what is it saying? A sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
that like set me down a really spiral you know and then I started I actually went to therapy and spoke to my counselor and she like acknowledged the anxiety that comes with with that and it being being okay it being normal right yeah so it is the same but it is different it depends on the person yeah absolutely could you let's talk a little bit more about how you started putting all these pieces together. Oh, this is what's going on. Oh, this is what's going on. And really getting a full sense of your mental health challenges. So I think it was my youth years. So I should also mention another traumatic event was my dad died when I was 10. He had cancer. Um, And that was a whole nother thing. Like I cannot emphasize it enough. If you have a kid and someone close to them has a an illness, a terminal illness, sit them down and talk to them about it. Um, because for me, you say the word cancer, I was 10. I don't know what cancer is. I didn't know he was going to die three months later. Had I known, I would have done a lot of things differently. So, uh, and also I saw him deteriorate. He went from being like a 250 pound man to 90 pounds. That's how thin he was. So after my dad died, I started like just kind of reevaluating things. And at that point I was entering my, my teen years and well, preteen years. And um, we started learning lots about stuff at school, uh, like mental health stuff. Then um, I felt I figured out that um, me being touched was molestation at school. Like it was just like a, it's like I'm sitting in class listening, and it was like, whoa, what the heck, right? So then I started piecing things together. And my mom always said that um, I was going to be an FBI agent. I just investigate. And I was just always obsessive of like getting to the bottom of it. So um, it was like, okay, that happened. So that's wrong. So now I have to figure out how I'm going to navigate this. So I ended up standing to, standing up to, for myself with the, when this guy tried to touch me again, moved on from that. And then I started going to church and then I started seeing what other teenagers were like more of the, the normal teenagers. And then I was like, Hmm, something's not right with me, but okay, whatever. I'll just keep going. Um, then I started having like dark, dark thoughts like I would talk to friends about it and they're just like, dude, you need help. But we didn't even know what kind of help, like (laughs) I don't know what kind of help I need. So I would just lean on friends and be like, Hey, I'm having like a a dark thought. And then back then I didn't have, I couldn't text. (laughs) So I would just call. So then um, we've learned about depression. I was like, Oh, I think I have depression, but I'll be okay. Like, and still didn't get any help. Um, We had a guidance counselor in, in high school and um, there was another traumatic event. Someone from my class, she was being stalked, and I knew about this. Oh, and wow. then she disappeared. And then they found her dead, I think, a week later, like near my house. Oh my gosh. Like it was like bizarre. And I remember the feelings of it. It was like, whoa. And there was like the guilt because I'm like, oh, I knew she was being stalked, but I didn't speak up. So the guidance counselor found out that. I knew. And then he tried to intervene. And I was so naive. I was like, why is this guy in my business? Why is he asking me these questions? Like, just leave me alone. Um, now that I'm mature, I'm like, oh, he was doing his job. He was trying to help me. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I started just journaling a lot. One of my pastors, my youth pastor gave me a journal. And I was like, oh, I'll try journaling. So I coped a lot with journaling. I'm like, oh, this one's good. So I, anytime I had like big emotions, I, I journaled it. Then I went to college. This was still before I um, got my diagnosis. I got to college and I was studying childhood development, brain development. And then I was like, 
I really think something's up with me. And then I just kind of diagnosed myself with depression. I didn't know what I was supposed to do with it, but I was just like, anytime I feel depressed, I'm just going to write about it and talk to my friends about it so I can just stay afloat. Then with anxiety, um, I got all these heart. I went to, um, to get my wisdom teeth pulled and they couldn't get my heart rate regulated. And um, I don't remember why they wanted to like completely knock me out, but they couldn't do it because my heart rate was too high. Then it dawned on me. I was like, my heart rate can't get regulated because I have anxiety. And first of all, I'm in a dentist. Of course, my heart's going to be racing. Maybe it's racing a little faster than normal. Um, so then I started putting the pieces together. I was like, I think I have anxiety. And then I started being more aware of how people made me feel. And um, I just kind of kept it to myself. I was like, all right, this is just a little anxiety, but whatever, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. So um, I'd say between the ages of, well, I say 12, that's when I found out that someone touched me was not good. Between the ages of 12 to let's say 21, 22, that's where I started putting pieces together that I might be struggling with my mental health, but I didn't know what I was supposed to do about it. And I was just like, I'm just going to journal until I feel better. So here we, we've got anxiety, we've got depression, we've got complex post-traumatic stress, all sort of going on at one time. You talked about journaling and you know getting to your mid-20s, which I think it's a good, it's a good habit for everyone to journal. How did you move forward from there? Right. So that's a lot of, that's a lot to be carrying. Any one of those challenges is significant, but if you throw all of that together, it can, for some people it's debilitating. What was your strategy to move forward? Journaling is one of it, but what steps did you take to keep yourself from being like, well, now I sit in my closet all day and I'm being silly right? That's clearly not how people operate for the most part, but like, I need to so tightly manage my life that I'm only going to do this. I'm only going to talk to these people. And that's not what I hear you saying. I hear you saying, I'm still open, but I am very, my boundaries are really strong and I don't give people a lot of chances to mess up, right? You mess up once you don't hear me and, and you're out. Um, so how, what steps have you taken and continue to take that sort of allow you to move in the world in a way that makes you feel comfortable? As of right now, now that I'm healthier and I've done therapy, I just find things that give me joy. Like my kids, they, they suck the life out of me actually, but they also give me joy. <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Yeah. Motherhood is crazy. So um, I'm intentional with them and I hone in on me being a good mom. I also work. And I think that was also like going back the way I dealt with all the weight of the trauma and anxiety and depression was that I just worked and worked and worked. I was always busy. I could not be home. I was always on a I was either at church. I was either at work or I was at a friend's house. It was just go, 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 go. Um, but since then I've slowed down. I've had to slow down. It was last year around COVID that I caught myself like really just wanting to just go sit in a closet and to stay there forever until COVID was over and I can go do stuff with my kids. And um, I remember telling my husband, I'm like, I really miss being at work. I miss being able to just go to work. And I, I have a business administrator 
administration degree. So I did a lot of admin work. I was the fixer. I was the office fixer. Mm, yeah. So I was like, I miss doing that, but I've given up my career to be at home with my, the kids. And then I got this idea. I was like, you know what? I have a bunch of friends who have their own business. I'm just going to put it on Facebook and see if anyone wants some free help. I was like, Hey, so I, I posted, I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about offering admin support. If any of you guys want some, I'm going to really, I was really vulnerable. I was like, I'm in a really dull season and I just need to do something other than be a mom. And I got flooded by a bunch of friends. I was like, yeah, I need help. I need help. And then I started doing that and it was so life-giving. I was like, wow, I'm helping people. I was fixing things. Like, it's like, oh, this is, this is cool. And then I didn't even know that this was a, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know it was a career. Shortly after I was telling one of my girlfriends, I was like, yeah, I'm doing admin work. She's like, oh, you're a VA. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And she's like, a VA, a virtual assistant. I was like, what on earth is that? And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, oh, okay. This is a thing. So then I was like, okay, maybe I'll just start my business and then do that. They didn't think anything of it. I was just like, I just want to help people. To this day, it's been over a year. That's kind of what keeps me going is I have something. I can feel these emotions. I can go down the spiraling hill, but I have something to just get up, like kind of drag me up and go get the work done. Um, and then also my husband is also very helpful in that. Like he's learned um, my uh, depression behavior. Um, I would say there was, there was one time I had postpartum depression and I was literally, I was planning my, my suicide and it was like, he's just amazing. He's just, he's, he's very perceptive, perceptive and he knows me. So I, all I needed to do was to go, um, and get the tools to make it happen that I was, I had it all planned out and he noticed that I would just stare out the window and he's like, what's happening. And then I just looked at him and I just like burst into tears. And then I told him and he was just like, what? Um, so off therapy, I went, um, he was getting in that department. Um, so those are the, the three things I say, kids, my job and, um, my husband are the things that like keep me afloat. For some people, medication is a lifesaver. And for other people, they're, they're able to manage their, their, the symptoms of their illness through, like you were saying, through very specific and tightly managed lifestyle choices. You know, I know people who for the longest time struggled with anxiety and they, you know, their symptoms were well-managed by, you know, going to bed at a certain time, eating a certain way, getting enough exercise, you know, working a certain number of hours, all of these things. And then there gets to be, you know, then there was a point when it was like too much and going to the office and answering email became something that was like, felt like a life or death situation. And that's when that person was like, oh, I think I need to do more than get enough sleep and drink enough water. Right. I think there's such a delicate balance there because those kinds of things can alleviate the severity of symptoms. Obviously, if you're exhausted, things are going to be harder. They're going to feel harder. They're going to feel worse than if you have gotten enough sleep. But so often, like the other flip side of that is you just need to sleep more. You just need to get outside and exercise, right? So people will negate mental health and 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 those symptoms and challenges by saying, well, you just need to do something that you're, you have changed your lifestyle 
are you on medication and have you found that to be helpful? And if so, in which ways? So I am on medication. As soon as I got my diagnosis, they put me on Prozac, but I was, I was able to stay on a really low dose. Um, it was 20 mil. I actually remember it was like my three month checkup. And I told the doctor that I thought taking meds was stupid because it wasn't making a difference. And she, she did like some, like some tests on paper. And then she showed me my levels from day one until <laughs> then. And I was like, oh, I didn't even notice. And then she's like, well, that's the point is gradual. Right. Um, so medication has been a game changer. I did try to get off it once. Cause I was like, I don't need these meds anymore. I'm done. And I'm not getting off of them again because I went psycho. Like, well, not, not psycho. That's a bad one. What's the right word? It was really unpleasant. Kind of like a psychosis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did go into a little like psychosis. And then I actually went to the doctor. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. And she's like, well, have you been taking your meds? And it's like, no. And then she's like, well, you're taking serotonin um, for your brain and not you're depriving your brain of that. So this is why this is happening. Yes, um, meds has helped me and I've had to establish a healthy balance of sleeping, um, which is very, was a very hard thing for me to do because I was a night owl and I have like this, I have FOMO, like I just, like nighttime hits and I'm like, I want to do stuff. Um, I think the difference, the difference between like what you're saying, you know, what you guys are both saying is like, there's a difference between coping and therapeutic behaviors and distractions. If you are using work, sleep, like in the height of like an anxiety spiral for me, I can nap for just hours a day because I'm distracting myself from the actual issues that are creating, you know, like anxiety or the things, or even just the anxiety I have to work through. Work can be a distraction, but those could also be the therapeutic routine things proper sleep is something that we all need, you know, for physical and for mental health. So that's the difference, right? That if you're using these activities for distraction, then that's not actually therapeutic. Right. Yeah. And I, it's good that you mentioned that because I had to find the balance. Um, Cause when I first did my EMDR and therapy, um, my counselor was very like, don't try to distract yourself from these feelings you need to feel because you haven't felt for for decades. Um, so I took that literal even to present now. I went back to the therapist and I was like, I don't know if me like working nonstop is, is a bad thing. I don't know if it's a healthy coping mechanism. And she said, well, look at it. Is it, does it feel therapeutic? Like, um, or is it just, you know, you're just bottling up your emotions. And I think that was a game changer for me because um, I was like, I need to find the balance between um, knowing that work is therapeutic and not feeling guilty about it and um, also taking the time to, to feel. And you know what's another big distraction, at least for me, is social media. Like like if I feel these feelings and I don't want them, I just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. Um, and I pointed it out to my therapist and she's like, well, you're distracting and we all know what happens. You have to feel the feelings. So she's like, how about you take the time, you allocate the time to deal with the feelings and then it's like okay then you get up and then you move on and you do your school and you do your work you do your sleeping or whatever and then take another moment to to feel those feelings something else has also helped me with social media is that I started following a bunch of therapists online that way when I'm numb scrolling my brain 
see something it's like oh okay I need to like deal with this and there have been times there have been times where I see a post and it's just like okay Louisa get off your phone and go deal with your emotions go talk to your husband go journal right so that's been, been healthy you have to find the balance between what's a distraction and what's actually healthy like working is not a bad thing if it gives you life it really is not a bad yeah. thing um sleeping is great right but you have to also find the balance because like for instance i look back when i was doing emdr and my husband would just make fun of me and now we know that it's because i was sick but i would wake up in the morning well i was working too so on the weekends i would wake up eat breakfast go to sleep wake up eat lunch go to sleep have an hour or two of just hanging out with my husband, have dinner. And then I was gone. I was sleeping. That was not healthy. Like I was depressed and I was exhausted from the, from the work. Right. So you got to find balance. Yeah, no, that, that, that's true. And I think, um, I really like your, uh, I mean, it's almost like a little sort of like insider's tip, right? If you're going to numb scroll, or if you're going to, you know, just be on social media and looking at stuff, to follow people or accounts that promote your health in some way. I also follow therapists. I'm like, well, if I'm scrolling here, maybe I'll find something that's going to be, maybe I could find something here that would be helpful. Right. Instead of just like also looking at cats, but like, there's also a bit of cats are helpful. They are in their own way. We know now that social media can be very harmful to people's mental health, either through FOMO, comparative, oh, everyone has this great life and my life sucks. But really what you're seeing is a very curated, filtered version of someone's life, bad news, you know, just constantly looking at like, oh, climate change and the world's going to hell in a handbasket, like all this stuff. And you're just like, it's draining and you know, it sort of chips away at people's mental health, regardless of whether you have, you know, illness or not. It's, it's such a great little hack to be like, I'm going to fill my feed with a whole bunch of therapists. So at least I'm getting something valuable out of it when I'm doing it. And it reminds me to like, be in my body, feel my feelings, be in my head and not try and distract myself from what I need to be dealing with. So that is a great tip. I'm impressed that you find your children to be grounding because I find my children to be overwhelming at times, or I have found them to be overwhelming that I, that they're incessant when, especially when they're younger, they're far less needy now, but the incessant neediness of my children was actually a, it was very detracting from my, my mental health. Like it prevented me from doing the things I need to do to take care of myself. So I think it's awesome that your kids actually like give you life in a way because my kids sucked the life out of me at various points. <laughs> Everything in moderation though. There are days where they trigger me. Like many days they trigger me, especially my son. My son is a sweetheart, but he's a very stubborn boy. So they do trigger me. And there's times that I need breaks. And I, I tell my husband, I have a kid hangover, which means that I'm going to go in my room and be left alone. And I tell my kid that too, like I need to be left alone. Um, something that also helps me with them is that I'm really honest and I get slack with this, but I'm just like, whatever I want my family, I want full transparency for honesty. So if my kids do something that make me feel weird or uncomfortable, I tell them, I'm like, I don't like this. Can you not do this? Right. Or if we have this thing in my house where we need space and my, my kids 
they they're always on each other's throat and they do this thing where they just go in their rooms and they just slam the door because they need space right <laughs> so yeah and mommy does that too it's just like i'm going to my room i need space go do something and during that time they can kill not kill each other literally but they can be fighting bickering i'm just like whatever and i have a closet that i can go into it's like my room and then it's a closet and i can just so you don't even hear anything right it's like and i have noise canceling headphones too so <laughs> oh wow my kids know that when the headphones go on, I've, I've had enough. So yeah. they give me life, but they also trigger me. But it's just a balancing act. Sure. Absolutely. What advice would you give someone if they were dealing with one or any of these issues, right? One or all of these issues, or they were just probably even more so sort of standing on the edge and looking at all of these things and saying, I don't know if I want to explore what it would mean to heal or to be on a healing journey from my trauma and addressing my mental health issues. You know, more, I think it's much more people being afraid. I packed all that stuff away. I don't even know what that looks like anymore. I'm really afraid to look at it. So what advice would you give people? I get this vision of, let's say you're bleeding, right? You're bleeding and you need to get stitches, but you're scared because you're scared of needles. So you can either just sit there and let yourself bleed out or you can go get the stitches and be better. The healing journey, it hurts, but the outcome is so worth it and it is so freeing. Eventually, unresolved trauma will come and bite you in the butt. So just take the plunge as hard as it is. Just do it. You wouldn't let yourself bleed out. So don't let yourself bleed out emotionally and mentally. That's that's such a apt metaphor. And I think so often, so often, that's like an understatement. Almost all the time, we don't equate trauma with injury in this, you know, sort of in the same way, right? Like if you, if you had a giant gash on your arm, you wouldn't be like, I'll just ignore it because then maybe it'll stop bleeding. You would go and have it taken care of. And yet, but these deeply traumatic events often get shoved aside, put away. If I don't think about it, it's not going to affect me. I won't, I just don't want to think about it and deal with the pain as opposed to thinking that pain shows up, right? You can't escape it. It shows up in different ways. Either it shows up in your relationships or your, you know, your perceptions about the world, or let's face it. Some of that trauma shows up in your body in different ways. Yep. Right. What is that? The bot, the, the body holds a score, holds a score, right? That whatever trauma you have, maybe it's not thinking about it and it might not be affecting your relationships in a way that you can really pinpoint, but maybe you have digestive issues. Maybe you get migraines. I, uh, again, I don't want to say that, that those things are absolutely hundred percent causative and connected, but you know, we know people who have not dealt with any of their childhood trauma and they have joint problems and they have digestive problems and they can't sleep, you know, and it's like not putting those two things together and ignoring one huge injury because you literally cannot see it on your body. As that's really important that I'm glad you mentioned that because it all intertwines. And like we're not saying that you have a migraine, you have trauma. But if you suffer from chronic migraines and you have trauma, then 
you might want to get checked out because they're all curlics and the body does keep the score. Like I can't emphasize this enough. Like I'm 34 and my body, because I'm always so tense from the anxiety, right? My joints just hurt. And I honestly feel like a much older woman. And I actually went to physio and the, the physiotherapist told me that I had the body of like a 75 year old. And I was like, gee, thanks. But I'm wise enough to know that it's because of the trauma, the anxiety, right? Speaking of cats, there was a story about a woman who was like, my cat was stopped eating, was um, not drinking, was like really looked like something was wrong and this cat was going to die. So she took the cat to the vet. The vet checked out the cat and was like, his vitals are fine. I think he got into a fight, lost, and now is depressed. Oh, I I can believe that. No, I can totally believe it. But that kind of, per- we were talking about cats and cat memes, like that kind of perfectly encapsulates like how these emotional traumas and triggers can manifest physically. Yeah. So um, to end on, you know, our, our collective note that we, we talk about in every, in every episode, we've been talking about this, the idea of Familact and how Familact is really about shared stories. And, and that's how we all connect is these little inside jokes and these words and phrases that mean something. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, an example of the Familact in your life, in your, in your family? So um, I have this saying, and I tell my husband, and I've learned this, um, shallow people suffocate me. So um, instead of going around saying, well, this shallow person is suffocating me, I just see, oh, we have a fluffy person in the house. And fluff is, you have all those like pretty stuff on the outside. Yeah. And then on the inside, it's just like, ooh. There's no substance. There's no substance at all. So that's kind of our um, insider thing. It sounds really silly and it could come across wrong, but it's, it's our, it's our thing. But it means you and your husband know exactly what you mean. It doesn't matter. And that's the idea of family act is doesn't matter what anyone else thinks it means you and your husband know exactly. Oh, there's a fluffy person here. That means they don't have a lot of depth. They're all like show and they're shallow. So, well, and I think about, you know, you think about fluffy, you think about clouds, right? What a great analogy for someone who's like all surface, nothing inside. Nothing inside, right. Yeah. You can go so, right through them. Yeah. Yep. And all family sounds silly, by the way. All right. family sound like. At least fluffy is a real word. You should hear yeah. some of our family. It's not <laughs> even, they're not real words. They're like, we've heard sound about sounds. We've heard about. You know, a lot of translations, like, because uh, we come from a, an immigrant family. Yours is actually like a word that you could find in a dictionary. So <laughs> right. I'm actually impressed. That is quite, that is impressive. I was going to say with fluff, we also have like a word, uh, like us hand sick on signs. So I could be from across the room and I could just, we could be in a conversation and I could just kind of put my hand here. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> That's so that's like the shorthand where it's like, I think we need to deal with the babysitter. And like somebody's <laughs> like, it's time to go. This person's done, right? So, I love yeah. that. That like you look like you're actually just getting a fluff out of your hair or something, <laughs> like off your shirt. And your husband's like, Oh, we need to leave this, we need to leave this party stat. Yeah, right. Oh my God. You have been such a joy. Thank you for for trusting us with your story and being so open. 
thanks for having me. It's been so fun. It's, it's, honor, it's an honor. And, and you keep saying like, I'm older now and I'm 34 and I'm like, you're a baby. I, I love how, like you really are an old soul. Like you, you've learned a lot in a short amount of time, but you have a long, wonderful life ahead of you. So yes, I'm excited to see where you go. Me too. For sure. Don't be fluffy people now. Oh right? yeah. No, no, no. I, <laughs> now I'm like, now I see someone actually getting fluff out of their hair and be like, I'm not fluffy. <laughs> I have a lot of depth. I'm not shallow. And they're going to be like, I had something in my eye. Calm down. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You have a Thank wonderful you. day. All right. You Take too. care. Bye. Bye.